So James chapter two, here we go. Verse 14, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? And suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by actions, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that, and they shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteousness, righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, was it not even Rahab, the prostitute, considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. This is the word of God for us, the people of God, and together we say, thanks be to God. Are you feeling convicted yet? Because James does that to us, does it not? Last week we had a lot of fun. We laughed a lot. But I think when I left here in my soul, I was disturbed a little bit. Were you? Were you disturbed to think, oh man, I, I need to go out and be slow to anger, slow to speak, quick to listen? Did you go read James 1? Did you, did you feel the word of the Lord just, you know, burning in your soul? I hope so, because James, it just does this to us, doesn't it? If you were not able to be with us last week, we have begun a, a series on the book of James. We're going through all five chapters this summer. In two weeks, we'll take off a little break for one week when Michael comes in to preach his first sermon with us. And if you missed last week, um, our audio didn't quite work out on the sermon podcast recording, and so we did something a little bit different, and I'm still editing it. Hopefully, it'll be up tonight or tomorrow. But at my small group on Thursday, um, eight guys sat around the table, and we just discussed the sermon in chapter one, and it was a lot of fun. And um, it's a little bit longer, but I'll have that up here soon. And so if you want to journey through, if you want to start back at James 1 with us, we go over that sermon in that podcast. So please check that out. Also, both of our live streams are now up and running accurately and, and completely. Thank you, Justin Merrick, for making all that happen. Even um, they're both on the same page. So you can check out. If you ever miss us during the summer, if you're traveling, we're always going to try to make sure that we can connect you even whenever you're not here. But some basics about the book of James, some things to remember. James is the brother of Jesus, writing to a mostly Jewish audience, Jewish Christians who've recently converted soon after the death of Jesus, or those who are still Jewish. And so a lot of the references that he makes are very Old Testament related, and he doesn't explain it a lot. Like right then, he talked about Abraham and Rahab as if the people knew who he was talking about. There's no established church yet there are not these different pockets around the ancient Near East to whom he's considering the Gentile church here or the church in Ephesus or the church in Galatia. He's writing to those around Jerusalem. He's writing to those not about church order or structure, but about holiness, about what it means to be holy as God is holy. 
what it means to be more like Christ. And when you consider what it means to be more like Christ in a juxtaposition to our own humanity, it will be disturbing. James is not my favorite of books in the Bible because it makes me feel stuff deep in my bones. It makes me realize my own faults. And when we confront our own humanity, it is never comfortable, is it? And so if I say something that you know, triggers something within you, this is not me, the preacher, trying to make you feel guilty because I promise I'm right there with you. James offers that deep reflection on our own selves. Last week he said, be quick to listen, slow to speak and slow to anger, which is not who we often are. He said to be doers of the word and not just hearers. And he said to those of you who do not help the vulnerable, your religion is worthless. I mean, it was as pointed and as sharp as it gets. He called our religion worthless. And there, I mean, there's no harsher words than that, are there? So today we're gonna jump into James chapter two and we're gonna focus on the second half of this chapter. The chapter is really broken into two parts. The first part's about favoritism and we're not gonna have time for that this morning. I wish we did. I just can't cover everything in the sermons. And so if we do another sermon follow-up, we're gonna try to hit on the favoritism part. But we're, we're really highlighting the second part, verses 14 through 26. Arguably the most famous part of James and it's definitely the most quoted part of James. I even heard it quoted on TV this week. It was not attributed to James, but this very verse that we just, some of these verses we just read, they're just kind of quoted whenever people refer to the New Testament. Faith without works is dead. Faith without works is dead. It's a very famous line. But for us this morning, I like to talk about this section of text in three different ways, three different reflections. The, the first is, I wanna talk about how these texts, how this, these verses relate to those which Paul wrote in Ephesians. Because this is the main contention Martin Luther had of the book of James. Remember last week I told you, Martin Luther didn't want James to be included in the canon. He was the, the father of the Protestant Reformation. Most of us Protestants you know, have some sort of route back towards the Reformation. And James was not one of Martin Luther's favorite books. He felt like it was in too much conflict with the rest of the New Testament. The second thing we're gonna consider this morning is, is how James often gets misappropriated or misused whenever it justifies works righteousness. All right, that's a big term. We're gonna talk about works righteousness in just a minute. And the last thing we're gonna consider this morning is what does this text say about sanctification? What, does, what do these verses have to say about how we live holy lives, all right? So that, that's our task this morning. It's a weighty task, but let's pray together before we jump in. Will you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your word. May it always be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O oh, Lord, our strength and our redeemer. And all God's people said? Amen. I mean, it's summertime. We're all relaxed, I know. But y'all should know this by now. I'm expecting some like enthusiasm. I need to know you're still with me. I know Bruce is with me. I need everybody else to be with me. And all God's people said? Amen. All right, we're all together. We're all together. Have you ever heard of the straw man fallacy or straw man argument? For those of you maybe who participated in debate team, you might know of what a straw man argument is. Straw man is whenever somebody takes a really weak part of somebody else's argument and exposes it. You might have somebody offer a very intelligent position on a matter, 
but maybe one of their points is not as strong as the other. And so they pick at that one part that's weak and, and judge the entire argument based on that one part. Nine parts out of 10 might be really strong, but one part's not as strong. So you, that's the straw man, where you go for the weakest part. A more practical version of that is whenever we sometimes twist somebody's words, actually, to make their position or argument invalid or different than what they might have intended. This happens a lot, a lot more than we probably realize. Like, so a silly example would be if your spouse ever says to you, hey, honey, I think we should be more physically active. And you say back to her, oh, so you think I'm overweight. And she says, no, 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 I didn't say that. But then I say, or, or you say, yeah, but that's what you meant, right? That's not what she said, but I twist it because I've got, the, or you, whoever, this is hypothetical, I'm sorry. Because you think you've got these preconceived notions of what their opinion is, and so you twist it to be what you want it to be. That's straw man, all right? This actually happens a lot in politics, right? You, you see this when people try to, to bolster their own position by minimizing somebody else's. A candidate might have like a wonderful plan for lots and lots of things, but then that one little part gets picked apart and repeated over and over. That is what straw man is. And I bring that up because as we think about why Martin Luther didn't like James and why James is so different, I think oftentimes we have some straw man type arguments or conversations going on against the book of James or even if you are a favor of James against Paul. I mean, depending on what position, whose side you've got, I think sometimes we don't appreciate the strength of each. And so Paul says this, it's gonna be on the screen, so it's a little bit, this is what Paul says in Ephesians. He says, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And it is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So Luther and others who have this propensity to, to talk about Paul and to talk about the New Testament thought that Paul was advocating for salvation that comes through faith alone. Have you heard that term, through faith alone? Often it's talked about as how we find it in the Bible, solo scriptura, through the scriptures, where you have the ne everything necessary for salvation is given to us by grace through faith. But then when James says in verse 14, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds, can such faith save them? Luther felt like James was arguing that it is only by works somebody faith can be made legitimate. And this is the tension that is carried throughout the past 500 years, or even more, but especially since the Protestant Reformation. There's these, the, the, those of us who say, you know, it is really, it's just believe in the right things. As long as you believe in Jesus, you can be saved. And there are those who say, well, actually, you have to do good things or else you don't, you're not really saved. You're not really, you don't experience the goodness of grace of God if you don't actually do good works. Some of us side with James. Some of us side with Paul. And this tradition or this tension carries throughout different traditions of Christian history. But like I said, I think to lean so far one way as to excuse or forget the other is a straw man fallacy. It's to try to twist somebody's words to say that it's different than what it actually is. Just because Paul says it's by faith does not mean that he discredits good works or that they're not a part of faith. And just because James says that you have to have good works, he never once says 
that your own salvation is not dependent on the work of God. Let us not twist one in favor of the other, but see that there is a completeness with both. I think that is why the biblical compilers, they, they left both in there. There is a healthy tension. We need Paul and we need James. One is not more right than the other. So as we look through these different lenses, we can't help but think about the ways in which we encounter the text based on our own lives experience. You cannot approach the Bible and leave yourself behind. You always look through the lens of experience. Martin Luther did that same thing. His skepticism of James was not unfounded. The reason why he brings this angst towards this book was because in his context, the church was doing some very difficult and inappropriate things. It was practicing the sell of indulgences. Have you ever heard of that? Where, where you, when you basically sell tickets to heaven, helping people get out of purgatory, this, this place where you would go for a little while and, and it's still part of some Christian traditions. Or if you, if you prayed enough penance, you could get your own salvation, your grace back right with the world. It's what we call works righteousness. When you do things, whenever you're prescribed deeds in order to become right with God, reconciled or saved. Works righteousness is a very dangerous thing. And, and for James, he was very skeptical. This is a lot of his issues with the Catholic Church at the time was pushing back on this cell of indulgences. And now the, the Catholic Church has admitted those things were not the ways in which it should have been acting. Us as Christians, we recognize that you should not try to sell people heaven. Yet, if you look around even modern Christianity, there might not be the, the blatant cell of indulgences, but I think works righteousness might still underpin a lot of the ways we think about our faith. How many times have you been at a um, difficult place in your journey and you think, if I just get back to church more, then God will love me more? Or if I just read my Bible more, then I'll get that promotion I need. Or if I just pray more, then God will bless me with a new Corvette. I don't know. Insert your blessing here. How many of you have had that experience that, that you think, that we think our faith and our salvation is contingent on how well we behave? I think that is sometimes how James has maybe been a little misused because it's easy to, to skew the text to, to sound that way. It is one of the most ardent pieces of what we now call the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel that says your favor in God's eyes is contingent on the certain things you do. If you pray so many times a day, if you plant your seed in the ground, if, if you send somebody money, then you will be cured of this. You will get that. You will become whatever it is you want to become. It is this overemphasis on your own salvation and righteousness is so dependent on your own works that you have to keep climbing up by works and works in order to gain God's favor. And I don't think that's what James is saying. I believe this New Testament, and when Paul says that there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God, not heights, nor depths, nor powers, nor principalities, anything of this created world, there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God. Nothing you've done, 
Nothing you've said, nothing you've thought, nothing you have failed to do can separate you from the love of God. Whatever guilt you are carrying, God's forgiveness is offered to you. We come to this table of communion in just a few minutes as a reminder that God's grace is new for us each and every day. You don't have to earn it. God gives you love and grace abundantly, unendingly, free of charge. There's nothing you can do to earn your own salvation. You are forgiven and you are loved. Yet James does have these words that convict us to consider what does it mean to be a people that are forgiven who do not abandon the call to be like Christ. And so that brings us to our third and last piece about sanctification. As Wesleyans, we talk about grace in three different ways. And you've probably heard this plenty of time. All of my confirmands in here, all of those who've been Methodist your whole life, you're like, oh, my wheelhouse, I got this part, all right, we Methodists, we know. We talk about grace as that prevenient grace that goes before us. Grace is that which forgives us welcomes us, calls us, beckons us before we even know who God is. God is at work in your life. Before you even came to church, before you even brought here, God was at work in your life. God is present with all, that prevenient grace. Whenever a parent or whenever parents or a couple bring a, a child to be baptized, they are the prevenient grace of God in that child's life. And then we also talk about that justifying grace, that grace that offers us salvation, that frees us from our sin, that grace that comes from the cross and is offered to us new each and every day, that offers us that love and forgiveness. We call that the justifying grace. But John Wesley, he was real big on that third part of a grace. He, we call it the sanctifying grace. That is that grace that admits just because we're saved doesn't mean we're perfect, amen? Hey, wait, let me, is anybody perfect in here? Just a show of hands, all right? I'm glad nobody raised their hands. We'll be having a preacher conversation after this, all right? We know that our salvation does not make us immediately holy as God is holy, right? We are not perfected the moment we experience the saving grace of God. And so we are on a path of sanctification. Sanctification is just a fancy word of saying we're trying to be more holy. We're trying to be like God. And James calls us and tells us that to be holy as God is holy says this, you have faith, I have deeds, show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. Everybody, even the demons believe that there is one God. It is our faith that compels us to do the good works of God. And so James's conviction on our hearts is not that it is by your deeds for which you will be saved, but if you are saved, you will have good deeds. If your faith is genuine, if your belief is true, it can't help but compel you to try to be more like Christ. Every time we are not like Christ, we are denying our faith, and we have to ask for forgiveness. We have to recognize our own failures and sins. And there's that sanctifying grace that welcomes us back onto the journey each and every time with new mercies. 
Like James said last week, if you're just a hearer of the word and not a doer, your religion is worthless. If your religion is just about coming to church and not about helping vulnerable people, then James wants no part of your Christianity. James is not trying to deny that we are saved by our faith. He's trying to help us make sure our faith is awake and alive. That our faith in Christ and our salvation is made evident when we do the work of God in the world. When we are compelled by love to offer love to others. When we are driven by this desire to know God, to be better people, to be holy as God is holy. And so I agree with Paul that we are saved by faith, but I also agree with James. You can't show me a faith that's alive that doesn't have deeds. If our faith is not causing us to serve, to offer grace and love and forgiveness to others, if our faith does not drive us to be more like Christ, then our religion is worthless. Or we might as well pack it all up and head home. So may we be a church that embraces the salvation offered to us, the forgiveness given to us, the grace that we have, and live into it by being holy as Christ is holy. Will you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your direction in our life. We thank you that you are compelling us to be your people on this earth. We ask, Lord, for your forgiveness when we have failed to be an obedient church, when we have failed to do your will, when we have broken your law and rebelled against your love. Forgive us, we pray. Free us for joyful obedience to you, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And all God's people said...